Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. And this is always the kiss of death, what I'm about to say. Uh, I've taught this book for 26 years. I've taught it on Sunday, on Wednesday. I've taught it in a half day, one hour. Uh, I've been studying it for 35 years. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. And this is my favorite chapter. It really is. It still is my favorite chapter. Now, don't get overexcited. It's my favorite chapter. I didn't say today was going to be good. It's just my favorite chapter. Uh, this is a tremendous chapter. Uh, so chapter 20, verse 1, if you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen. John said, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil, and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit. Now, the bottomless pit has to be in the earth because a globe is the only place where you can get a bottomless pit. It's the only place where you can be going down and eventually going up. So, somewhere in the earth. And he shut him up and he set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a short while. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, and who did not worship the beast nor his image, and not have received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. These are those who went through the great tribulation, and they stayed true to the things of God. And notice, they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, we've been looking for the blessing in the book of Revelation. There are seven. Here's one of them. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, verse 7 says, when the thousand years is over, Satan will be released. His doom is in verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast in the lake of fire with brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and the smoke of their torment uh, will be day and night. There's a phrase that gets repeated over and over again in these first seven verses, and it's the phrase, a thousand years, six times in seven verses. Almost like God wants us to think this is a thousand years, right? Like, something's up here. God's a good parent. Parents repeat things. My older kids tell me all the time, now, Dad, you got to stop repeating yourself. Um, it's almost like God wants us to know something about this chapter. It reminds me of Genesis, where it looks like God wants us to know he created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. There's this redundancy of the word day. Day one, we're told what happened. What did God create? Then, if you need more redundancy than that, evening came and morning followed and then there's the next day, and it goes on and on and on. There's this tremendous redundancy, like God wants us to think it really was six days. Then Moses gets the law, and one of the commandments is to keep holy the Sabbath. Why? Because on six days God created the world, and the seventh day he rested. There's so much redundancy there, you almost think this has to be six literal days. Well, same thing's going on here. A thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. There must be something about this time period that's significant. Um, it's called the millennium. You may have heard that term, but you didn't know what it was. 
Term's not in the Bible, it's Latin. Milli is a thousand, annum, you know, is years, a thousand years. Uh, the Greek word is chili, not like Mexican chili, it's C-H-L-I. Those who believed in a thousand years were chiliest, right? It is the completion of a prayer. Jesus taught us to pray that we prayed our whole life. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Listen, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <clears throat> now we're to pray that prayer for ourselves and every day. Why? Because we want the kingdom to come through us. You know, we're the church. We're the salt and the light of the world. We're a preservative. And certainly in my life, I want the kingdom to come through me. But this thousand-year period is a time where it comes in all of its fullness. It's a time when God's going to set things right. Where a world turned upside down will be right-sided. And we're going to see that God's plan A really was the right plan. You know who believed in this age to come? The Jews. They looked at the 1,800 references in the Old Testament. 17 of the prophets in the Old Testament, 17 books of the Old Testament, talked specifically about this age. Again, 1,800 references up on the screen for those of you who kind of want to geek out on this. I've given you like the top 13 from Isaiah and Jeremiah, etc. But uh, Jewish people were steeped in this. That's why the disciples, when they were following Jesus, would say things like, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Or right in the middle of Jesus' ministry, we think they're selfish. They're saying, oh, Lord, can we sit on your right hand or your left hand? And we think they're the B apostles, not the A apostles, because they're so politically... Uh, Minded, and nothing could be further from the truth. There were some zealots, there were those who were politically minded. They understood this age to come. And it wasn't because of what Jesus taught. Uh, Jesus was a fantastic teacher, right? No one ever taught like this, no one ever had such authority like this, the way this man speaks. But that's not what was making them think about the kingdom. When a man turns water into wine, walks on water, can calm storms and feed 5,000 with a few blows and fish, right away these Jewish boys are thinking, the kingdom has come. This is what we learned about a Messiah. There would be a day when the sick would be healed and demons would flee, when the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now the New Testament calls it the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. In Hebrews 2, 5, it's the world to come. In Acts chapter 3, you may have read times of refreshing or the restoration of all things. Hebrews 12 says it's a kingdom that cannot be broken. And now we know it's time frame, a thousand years or the millennium. Now, I want you to sit back and relax. A few minutes and I want to tell you about this kingdom. It's not out of Revelation. I did all the heavy lifting for you. Uh, those 12 or 11 verses I gave you, many more verses, I want to give you a preview and a glimpse, and all we have is a glimpse of what this kingdom will look like. It's fascinating. Uh, the first overarching and probably most important uh, prospect of this period is universal peace. Now, when I say universal peace, that pulls on your heartstrings because you care about the rest of the world. But peace means nothing to anybody in this room unless you have been translated from another country. Because you've lived in peace all your life. You have the greatest military in the world. You have two oceans that separate you. And we're never invaded, right? We live in virtual peace. 
There are people in the world who will give their right arm for that kind of protection, to live with that type of peace. You've heard me say before, the legacy of man on the planet is war. If you went back and looked at 6,000 years of human history, that would be man's legacy. But Isaiah says there's coming a time where nations will beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. That's on the wall in the UN, by the way. There's coming a time where there's going to be no more war colleges, no more military industrial complex, no guns, no armament. All that all that knowledge, all that technology is going to be put in the setting things right and bringing equality to the nations. Second characteristic is that of joy. Not temporary joy, but lasting joy. Isaiah says there's coming a time where God's going to wipe away tears from all faces. You think about all the injustice that's ever been done. Now, we're only hearing about injustice in our day, and we're trying to conquer it. Can you imagine the millions who have been unjustly treated for all these years who their story's never been told? God's going to clear all the guilt, all the shame. He's going to set things right in this area. There's a song we sing at Christmas called Joy to the World. And we sing it because the Savior has come, right? But when Isaac Watts wrote that song, I challenge you, go back and read his lyrics. He was writing more about this kingdom and this coming than he was the first coming when joy really will come to this world and the government will be upon his shoulders. It talks about holiness and justice covering the earth. Uh, it talks about a time where there will be the full knowledge of God. You know, no longer you have to witness to people and tell them about God. Every neighbor can tell you about God. Every newspaper, every broadcast, every podcast, it's going to be so out in the open. It's not going to be what Jesus said that it's hidden it's going to be out in the open. Everyone's going to know about God and who God is. I love this. The curse and the fall is going to be reversed. So you all know we're living in plan B, right? Yeah, we, we like earth, right? We like things about earth, but this is plan B. This isn't the way God meant it to be. When man sinned, God pronounced five curses on the earth. He cursed the serpent. He cursed Satan. He cursed the woman. He cursed... The earth, right? Now thorns and thistles would come forward. So we, we basically live in a fallen world, but listen to this from Isaiah. You've heard this all your life, out of context, by the way. It says, there's coming a time where the wolf will dwell with the lamb, not the lion. So get rid of that picture. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and isn't this cool? A little child will lead him. You go to the zoo and you can get right into the, into the there'll be no cages, but you can go right in with the, with the animals. The cow and the bear will graze. The young ones shall lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play in the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall be put his hand in the viper's den. No helicopter parents at this time. They shall not hurt nor destroy in my holy mountain. Here's why. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The whole earthly curse will be reversed. Uh, one of the fruits of the earth being reversed of that curse will there be no more deformities, no more sickness. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will put all these bones back together. No wheelchairs, no hospitals, no abortion clinics, no breathing tubes. 
God's going to take all this from the earth. No more shall be that an infant shall live but a few days, nor an older man who hasn't fulfilled his days, for a child shall die at 100 years. In other words, breaking news, there's an anomaly. A child died at 100 years old. So longevity comes back to the earth. You have to remember, people are going to, when Christ comes, kind of go into this period. Others are going to be born in this period. They're going to have a sin nature, just like you and me. Except Satan's bound, and there's no one to tempt them. Economic equality. No longer the 1%, the 20%, the middle class. Every man will sit under his vine and under his fig tree. There will be universal worship of God. No false religion, no cults, no lies. There's going to be a literal temple built in Jerusalem again. The sacrifices are going to come back. Not because we need sacrifices, but it's going to be a sign of purification and all that Christ has done. And probably the greatest thing is Satan will be bound. In fact, Ezekiel says we're going to look upon him and say, is this the one who deceived the nations? Is this the one who was behind all of these wars and infirmities and disease? Is this the one who deceived the nations? It's a time, when, again, when God's going to set things right, what the Jews would call tikkun alam, to fix the world. Now, what makes this age possible? The single greatest event that will ever happen to the planet. Uh, If you have a Bible, go to chapter 19, a few verses up, verse 11, where John says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. That's the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. And on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood. And here's the giveaway. His name is called the Word of God. Thirty titles for Jesus in the book of Revelation. And the armies in heaven, you might want to take notice of this people group. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Remember that? The saints, one of the promises to those who overcome, we would be in fine linen. We're we're coming back with Jesus. Out of his mouth goes a sword that he might strike the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, is anybody sad but me that newspapers are dying? I just read a report yesterday, like 60% of newspapers are already going out of business. I just hope I make it to the end with newspapers. I love the newspaper. Uh, But they're going out of business. Now, long before Steve Jobs came along and any of us knew what a font was, in the newspaper business, they had a a font called Second Coming Font. It was reserved for just unbelievable headlines like Kennedy being shot or Martin Luther King or Man on the Moon, right? Today we have breaking news like it's going to rain today in Philadelphia. That's breaking news today. But Second Coming Font, why was it called that? Because that was looked at the greatest event that could ever happen in the history of the world, is that Jesus would return. The Second Coming in the New Testament is in 23 of the 27 New Testament books, 260 chapters, 320 references. Jesus talked about it 20 times. 
He talked about readiness for it 50 times. The Bible teaches it's literal, visible, and physical. Remember in Acts, the same Jesus who you saw ascend into heaven will come in like manner. Jesus said it'll be like when lightning flashes from the east to west. In other words, everyone would know it. Micah told us Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Zechariah tells us he returns to Jerusalem and it will be triumphant. And yet, no one talks about it. Now, I'm bullish on the church. I love all churches. I would never put another church down. But I know this much. You can go to a church five or ten years and never hear about the second coming of Christ, never hear about the millennium, never hear about the thousand years, and yet, and never maybe hear the book of Revelation. And it's the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing to those who read, keep, and hear these words. So why is the second coming so important? Second coming is important because God has to come to judge this world. He has to fulfill his promise that he said, if I leave, I'll come back. There's the full restoration of Israel. There's the binding of Satan. And then what I want to talk about this morning. The purpose of the second coming is to instill hope into you and me and all those who would ever believe. See, it kind of works like this. We all can live without almost anything but hope. Take hope away from us, we die. If you've ever read Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, it's the only secular book we have in the bookstore. He was a psychologist who spent his time in Nazi death camps uh, looking at those who had hope and no hope. You know, they were on their way to a death camp. And he actually instilled hope in people by just getting them or finding meaning for them to, to dig a ditch or do something meaningful. We all need hope. Every mom in this room hoped one day she would have a child and then hoped that child would grow and flourish and function and hoped they would go to school and get a job and hoped they'd have their own kids. Some of you are hoping that you're going to go to college and you're going to get married and you're hoping to get into retirement. You're hoping to pay off student loans. I mean, we traffic in hope. It's what keeps us going. You know, I mentioned the curse was reversed. Uh, two weeks ago, I was at the Fort Worth Zoo. Uh, I'm kind of a zoo connoisseur. If you give me a free day in any city, I go to the zoo. And I have all my favorites, and I couldn't believe it, but this was lauded as the second best zoo in America. And we went at 2 o'clock when most of the animals are sleeping, and I'll tell you what, it's almost like somebody knew we were coming and announced to all the animals to be on their best performance. There was a little gorilla doing backflips as his mother walked around. We had a male lion pacing and roaring. We had uh, another lion just perched, kind of like on Pride Rock, just staring at us. Um, the orangutans were playing, and then they ran over and went like this. And I had a kid next to me eating Cheez-Its. I took one of his Cheez-Its, threw it to the orangutan, and he went and grabbed it and ate it. And it was like, oh my gosh, they're actually like on display for us. And uh, I was telling those who were with me, I said, you know, everybody's fooling around with these little dogs now and cats and all. I said, I can't wait for the millennium because I know I was teaching on this. Like, like I'm going to have a leopard and, and a, I, want, I want this long snake. Like, these are the cool animals we were meant to have. But here's my point. The orangutan's not sitting around contemplating his existence. He's happy with a Cheez-It. And he'll be happy with a Cheez-It tomorrow and the next day. But you're not. You could eat lobster for 30 days, and once it starts tasting like hot dogs, you're going to want something else. 
Because you're made in the image of God. There's something transcendent about us. And because there's something transcendent, we, we traffic in hope. Martin Luther, who was brilliant, said there were two days on his calendar. There was this day, for you and me, May 12th, and that day, the second coming. Here's what Luther was saying. There's two days on my calendar. There's this day. It's the only day I have. It might be my last day. In that day, I could ride horses. I could preach the gospel. I could love on people. I could sleep and nap and read. But this is the one day I have. I have this day. But this day only makes sense in the light of that day. That's what Luther said. And I understand what Luther was saying. Luther was saying that there are many challenges in this world. But we have lives to live. And our shoulders can't bear all the burdens of all that's going on in the world. Again, I want the kingdom to come, but I've walked in too many slums. And you walk in a slum and there's 500,000 people and you think you're going to help 10. You're going to get them shoes. You're going to get them clean drinking water until you realize what happens to the 499,950 that I can't do anything for. You realize in John 5, when Jesus walked into the pool of Siloam, he healed one man and left everybody else there. And you start to realize the reason why there has to be this day and that day is because everything can be going well for me. I was born in America. We live in the land of prosperity. This is an illusion. It's an anomaly from all of history. And we're Christians on top of it. We're going to heaven on top of that. And we won the lottery. But how in the world could that be good if everything's good for me and bad for everybody else? That's why Luther said there has to be this day. And then there has to be that day where God sets everything right, where justice reigns supreme and holiness comes. And I believe in this thousand years, every question will be answered. We traffic in hope. Now, there's a little, there's a little secret to our culture that nobody talks about. We hear all these philosophies of secular humanism and, and all these university professors, they espouse all these things and they tell us there's no God and they tell us we're not made in the image of God and, and uh, evolution, all these things. And, and there's this downside that no one talks about that if you ever got into it, you would figure out. And that is they leave you and me with no hope. They sell thousands of books. People pay thousands of dollars to go to the universities to give you no hope. Now, even Hollywood's smarter than that. You know, the movie industry can be the most vile industry there is. But you know why they're not? Because they know stories need a great ending. They, need, they know people go there for hope. Which is also, by the way, you look at your phone every four seconds. You're not worried about the weather or did somebody take the trash out. It's been proven. It's scientific. You are looking at your phone, hoping somebody says something nice to you, hoping you got invited somewhere, hoping that somebody actually cares about you because it floods your mind with dopamine. We traffic in hope. But these people, these philosophers, these secular humanists, they don't understand they're leaving us with no hope. Robert Putman is my favorite cultural analyzer. You don't need Robert Putman to figure this out. He, he's great at the commentary on this. Birth rates in the U.S., Europe, and most Western industrialized 
countries are down and crashing through the floor. People are just deciding not to have children anymore. Now, you could say they're selfish, but if you start interviewing some of these people like Putnam has, they are, they are very unwilling to bring children into the world we're living in. Suicide among teenagers up 70% the last 10 years, tripled among girls in the last 10 years, overall 35%. This is America, the land of good and plenty. Depression is frightening. Uh, studies say one out of every four American adults is on some form of antidepressant or anxiety medicine. You know what the most endangered group in the U.S. is? People between 40 and 50 years old. They're telling us now, people from 40 to 50 years old, the last four years, the death rate has increased. It's never happened before. Heart attack, liver, suicide. It's not just suicide. It's just not hopelessness now. It's all the wrong things we've done to our body. Because we were told to eat, drink, and be merry. And this is now the most endangered group. Now, my goal on Mother's Day isn't to give you bad news. Okay? I'm just telling you what these brilliant people are peddling to you. Okay? There's a book I'm reading now that I'm just thrilled with by Albert Del Blanco. Uh, he's written a book called The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. And he talks about the Tocqueville and, and how America was really built on this idea of hope. Now, most of you know De Tocqueville. He was a French philosopher. He came to America, and he wanted to find out the secret of American success. And I think everybody's quoted this, that at the end, he looked at everything in America, and he said, it's not, it's not Wall Street. It's not the banking centers. It's none of those things. Go to the American churches, and you'll find out the secret of their happiness. But he had a lot of other things to say. Tocqueville thought that envy and longing were built into American life, right? We wanted to climb the ladder of success. That Americans suffered from the illusion, that means it's not true, that e equity would eradicate their envy and prosperity would quench their yearning for happiness. Do you all get that? Blank stares tell me you didn't get it. I'll say it again, all right. Tocqueville thought that envy and longing were built in American life, that Americans suffer from the illusion, in other words, it's not true, that equality could eradicate their envy and prosperity, could quench their yearning for happiness. In other words, if we could ever build a society where everybody, if we had a chicken in every pot, all the ills of society would go away. <laughs> you should be laughing because I just read you all the statistics how we're going backwards. That's why he said it was an illusion. He said these were illusionary hopes because the incomplete joys of this world, and you and I know this, would never satisfy a human heart. Satisfy an orangutan, but not a human heart. Because Ecclesiastes says that our creator put eternity within our hearts. And there are some people who choose not to think about things, but if you get quiet long enough, you begin to postulate some of these things. Del Blanco said the heart of every culture is hope. Hope is the way we overcome the lurking suspicion that all of our getting and spending amounts to fidgeting while we wait to die. Every culture must imagine some of end-of-life scenario that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours on this planet. If we are to keep at bay the dim, 
back-of-the-mind suspicion that lurks in every human being that we are adrift in an absurd world. And that's what everybody's telling us. We are adrift in an absurd world. Oh, but by, by the way, don't worry about it. Eat, drink, and be merry. Be happy. It's the world we live in. And it's not working. And the beautiful thing about the Christian message is we traffic in hope. We have the one message that gives hope to the human race. Not only hope that Jesus over the, overcame the grave, that's wonderful. And then we have the message of hope that, that though you were a sinner, that based on the merits of Christ's sacrifice, you could be set free. That's wonderful. We sang today that you can have freedom. That's all wonderful. And it's great to traffic in that hope, but there's a greater realization that the prophets saw into, and that's what, when Jesus came, he would set things right. Now, I am thoroughly convinced that Christians are undereducated in their future, right? Yes, the average Christian, what's your future? Heaven. That's a wonderful idea, right? We're told to be heavenly-minded, think on heavenly things, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Of course, heaven is in our future. But can I tell you this? We ain't staying there long, okay? This might sound blasphemous. Do you know you and I were built for earth? That's why we like it here so much. Uh, I don't see anybody kind of ready to go to heaven right now. Most of you would struggle, all right? You talk a big game. If it came to pass, I don't think you're ready. You were meant to be here. This is our Father's world. There's a hymn that says that. Uh, albeit fallen, this is the place we were made to be. We were given an earth suit, and, and we were meant to cultivate and flourish. So you know what God's going to do? For a thousand years, he's going to prove out that plan A was a good plan. That had man never sinned, this was a wonderful plan. Let me show you a little bit about your future. I already shared with you in chapter 19 when Jesus comes that the armies of heaven are coming. That's you and me. Chapter 20, verse 4, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Now, that's probably the, the 12 apostles. But, but it goes on and says that we who are a part of the first resurre resurrection... This condition of blessedness, there's seven in Revelation, verse 6. The second death has no part of us, but we will be priests to God and we will reign a thousand years. In other words, when Jesus comes, he's not running a one-man show. There's going to be billions on the planet and there's going to be a government and we're going to be a big part of it. Uh, Daniel talks about this. This was written 3,000 years ago that in the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom and they'll rule forever and ever. That's why the disciples thought that way. Uh, when the Most High comes, he will judge his holy people. Then the time of the people to take over the kingdom, the sovereignty, the power, the greatness, his kingdom will be forever and his rulers will serve and obey him. You're saying, Pastor Bob, that's the Old Testament. What about Paul? 1 Corinthians 6, he said, don't you realize someday we believers will judge the world? And since you're going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little disputes among yourselves? Don't you realize one day you're going to judge angels? How scary is that? One day you're going to judge angels. 
And he goes on to say, now, can you get things right here? You're suing one another, and probably in a church like ours, you're gossiping and you're complaining. And, and Paul's like, let's call a timeout. This is all God's got. This is like plan A. There is no plan B. You're going to rule the world. So why don't we start acting and living that way? We have things so backwards. We think the people that don't drink, don't smoke, don't curse, the good little boys and girls are going to get a little star in heaven. No. No. When Jesus told parables, remember what he said to those who were faithful? You're going to be given ten cities. He's looking for faithfulness. People that make decisions in their life based on the scripture. It's mind-boggling to me. I mean, I do it. We all do it, but it's mind-boggling. Like you're really going to fudge your taxes so you get an extra $18 back. And you're really going to make these cheap little decisions that are going to benefit you for the th next 30 years when you can be ruling cities. See, this is the proving ground. This is where God's proving out who he can give that type of authority. Now, I gotta be honest with you, I'm a pastor so I can't lie. Uh, a lot of the church doesn't believe a word that I just said to you. They look at the thousand years and say it's an allegory, it's a metaphor. It's not literal, it's spiritual. Three camps, don't lose me on this. There's a millennialist, just put an A in front of millennialist, that means no. You put an A in front of something, means there isn't a millennium. So what these people believe is that Satan was bound at the cross and that we're living in an unspecified period of time where all the verses I read to you about the lion and the wolf, etc., are all metaphors of life getting better and better and better and that Jesus is spiritually coming through the church. Then there's post-millennialists, probably the most prominent view lately, where the world's going to get better and better. We're going we're, we're to vote Christians in the office, and we're going to solve cures, and the church is going to get stronger and stronger. And then once we do it all, Christ comes. And then what I taught you is premillennial, that you actually need Christ to bring about the kingdom, that he needs to come and set things right. Now, I'm not here to put down other views, but every once in a while, people will come and say, the view I taught today, premillennial, they'll say, oh, don't, don't believe that view. That was invented in the 1700s, and it wasn't what the early church fathers believed. Unless somebody is really, really smart and has read a really, really lot, when somebody tells you about the church fathers, that means they couldn't sleep one night and they Googled something, okay? Because I've read the church fathers, and it's tough sledding, and nobody's sitting up reading the church fathers. They heard that from somebody. Plus, it's not true. Uh, Papias, Clement of Rome, Barnabas, Ignatius, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, all from AD 160 to 230, these were the heavyweights of the early church fathers, and they were all chilliest. They believed in a thousand years. No debate on that. The other problem is when you talk about church fathers is that Paul in the book of Acts gathers the elders together at Miletus, the Ephesian elders, 
And he's warning them in tears that grievous wolves have already come in that won't spare the flock. So everybody's saying, well, the closer you can get to the apostles, the closer you are to truth. No, truth was waning already in Paul's time. That's why there was so much emphasis on the scriptures, on the scriptures. Third century, Augustine comes along, and, and he was brilliant. He wrote The City of God, Origin. These men began to allegorize prophecy, the book of Revelation, the thousand years. Um, they spiritualized it, and it fit the Roman Catholic Church to a T because they were building a kingdom on earth, and the only way to build a kingdom on earth is to not talk about the reign of Christ. Fit them like a glove. But John keeps saying, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. Now, I, I understand the book of Revelation is full of symbolism and there's imagery and similes, but John tells us every time that happens. You know, he says, I saw a beast who was like a lion. It wasn't a lion, it was like. That's a simile. He talks about um, around the throne of God, th they were singing. It was like the sound of many waters. It wasn't many waters, it was like the sound of it, okay? He talks about spans of times. Why all of a sudden is he so redundant here about a thousand years? And then why, when you read it this way, does everything fit? Why, when you allegorize it, does it not fit? Because if you go back in history, and there was supposed to be, you know, this age, then what happened after, you know, year 1001? Okay, because they, they didn't know we were going to have 2,000 years to Christ, so you got that problem. Then you got another problem. Paul told Timothy in the last days, things will get worse. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, blasphemous, brutal, despisers of good, lovers of bad. Jesus said when he returns, would he find faith on the earth? That was a rhetorical question. No. He said it would be like the days of Noah. Men would be given in marriage and marrying and buying and selling. The last thing they'd be looking for is judgment or the coming of Christ. Jesus said it would be like the days of Noah. If you go back and read Genesis 6, it said men began to multiply. We're seeing that in our day. It said every thought and intention of man's heart was only evil continuously. It didn't say every action. It said every thought and intent. You couldn't measure that in Genesis 6. Only God could. You can measure it now through the Internet. I just got back from a conference where they talked about sex robots. That's the next thing coming. Now, this isn't some... Christian, you know, thing we've uncovered. This is ABC News. We're in interviews walking around and there are bodies hanging from the ceiling. $20,000 sex dolls that are going to talk and you can get them in, you can get a biker girl or, or whatever you want. Their styles, they're going to talk, they're going to interact. The horse is out of the barn and it ain't coming back. When you boot up your Mac or your iPhone, we bit out of that apple. And until Jesus comes, that piece ain't going back. Way gone. Genesis 6, angels having sex with human beings. Now we're going to have sex with robots. And I have to believe the world's getting better and better and better. And Jesus comes. I don't have that kind of faith in man. And though I love the church, I don't think that was the church's mission. The mission was to preach the gospel 
in all the world and all that would hear. 1700s is when the doctrine was rediscovered. It's like salvation by grace through faith. It lost its way until Luther came. And there was a reformation. Donald Barnhouse, James Boyce, both pastored here in Philadelphia. John MacArthur, John Walford, Dwight Pentecost, David Jeremiah, Chuck Smith, Chuck Swindoll, Hal Lindsey, many great scholars, all believe the thousand years is literal. I like what... Um, Mark Hitchcock said in his book, The End, he said we should all be, ah, millennialists. Ah, what a glorious time this is going to be when God sets everything right. I've been a sin observer for 35 years in my life, in the life of people and culture. I've been a slum walker. I've been a cultural observer, and there is no hope without the Prince of Peace. And there's no joy without the king that needs to come. You can elect a thousand Christian presidents, and you're never going to see what God has always intended to show us that life, the way he created it, is the way to go. The rest of the chapter talks about Satan being loosed and then a great white throne judgment where people are judged according to their works. The beautiful time about the time we live in now is that all who would come and believe in Christ would be saved. The last thing you ever want to do is be judged on your works because God is a righteous judge and he keeps great records. It says books were opened. There's never going to be a book opened on you if you have acknowledged your sin and accepted Christ, no one will ever book. Your name will be in the book of life and everything you've ever done will be covered. But if you're full of hubris, which is pride, which is, I'm all that. Jesus said every idle word, every word in private that you thought no one heard will be known. Today's the day of salvation. It's the only day we have. It's this day. But oh my gosh, our hope is in that day when God makes everything right.